Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles program that we call Things We Said Today. This is a talk show in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the four regular co-hosts of the show, and some of you might know me for another Beatles show that I host called Every Little Thing. Being joined by my regulars, Steve Marinucci, who writes for Beatles Examiner. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. We also have... Al Sussman, one of the writers for Beatle Fan Magazine. He's been with them since the very beginning of Beatle Fan. Hi, Al. Hi, Ken. Hello there, everybody. And we've also got Alan Cozen, who not only writes for Beatle Fan, but a whole bunch of different publications as a freelance writer. He's a big music critic for these many years, and we welcome Alan to the show. Hi, Alan. Hey, Ken. Hello, everyone. And we've got a special guest with us who's joined us uh, to celebrate a brand new album from a band that he is in. He is Glenn Burtnick, and he's had a very long career in the music industry. I remember him back in the 80s when he was putting out solo music, and uh, for many years he was in the band Sticks. He replaced Tommy Shaw for a few years. And um, he's written with a whole bunch of great people in the music industry, and if you go to the fest for Beatle fans, if you've been a regular... He's been the bass player. He's been the Paul guy in uh, their house band, Liverpool. And he's here to join us to talk about this new band of his called The Weaklings. We welcome Glenn Burtnick to Things We Said Today. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, we're here to talk about this uh, new CD, this new album of yours, and to mix that with all kinds of conversation about the Beatles. But uh, for those of our listeners that don't know about this band called The Weaklings, there is a new CD out. It's a self-titled album called The Weaklings. It's made up of 12 tracks. Half of them are original songs, and half of them are songs that the Beatles either gave away to other artists or songs that they recorded themselves but didn't release when they were together that ended up on the Beatles anthology. And the six original songs are done in the style of early Beatles. They're songs that musically will remind you of the early years of the Beatles, melodically, harmonies, instrumentation, and uh, it's really a wonderful CD, and I'm really enjoying it. I've been listening to it for the past couple of weeks, and first of all, we want to ask Glenn the very basic question, what gave you the idea to put together this band, and also to have an album that was half originals and half songs that the Beatles gave to others or didn't release themselves? Well, um, it was an evolution, uh, and... I, under no, it was never a plan, uh, and it just kind of fell together slowly. I, I do a show, a big production in a theater in New Jersey every year called the Beatles Bash, and uh, we cover a number of Beatle records uh, once a year. And uh, about a year or two ago was the fiftieth anniversary of the of the first two Beatle albums. So we did. Um, so in, in, half of that show was those two albums. So instead of me employing the usual orchestra, choir, and harp, and all the other instruments that you get into in later Beatle work, the first half of the concert, we focused on these two early albums, which, you know, for all intent and purposes, really is arranged for four people. There's just two guitars, bass and drums and three vocalists most of the time. So during that process, the four guys, the three guys that I played with in this show, 
we looked at each other and said, this is fun. You know, it was so much more fun now just doing those four instruments instead of the, you know, the big production, the big arrangement. And so then somebody in the group got a call for, you know, they needed a band to do a, sh- a gig at a, a library of all places. So we got to play, you know, make noise in a library and we didn't even have a name, but uh, the audience reacted very favorably. We had a blast and this four particular group of fellas, we all just, um, we kind of fell into, well, maybe we should be a group. So we came up with a name, started to play. And then one of the guys, Bob Berger, who's my main collaborator in the group said, we should make an album because when groups play, they sell merch. This is what, what we do nowadays. And I thought it was the stupidest idea that I'd ever heard of. You know, I, I know that there are Beatle tribute acts who record Beatles songs, who re-record Beatles songs, and they, they try to make it sound as close to the Beatles as possible. And my philosophy on it is that you just sit there when you listen to somebody doing that and you feel like, well, you just com- you're constantly just comparing it, and it it's always going to fall short because who's better to sing, you know, all my loving than Paul McCartney, you know, and it's just all those songs were done perfect, and that's why we love this music so much. But I said, okay, we'll we'll sell some merch. So then we went into the studio, and Marty Scott got wind of this. Here's a modern story. On Facebook, he heard about me working on this record and he contacted me and he said, I want to put out your record. So um, that started more wheels turning. And we said, you know, this is let's not try to retread greatest hits of the early Beatles quartet. Let's not do twist and shout and all my loving and whatever. Let's let's find some songs that uh, aren't as familiar to people. It's still a quartet, and um, and it's still early music. So, so we started to work on that, and and then it dawned. On, Bob and I are both um, successful songwriters. We've written songs for a number of different artists, and so you know, along the way, we said, well, okay, how about we add some of our own songs? And and on top of that, then we got into the the technology. And we created this monophonic record and we set up very much like the Beatles originally did. You know, there's diagrams and stuff of how they set up in the studio. And for the first time in my recording career, I was singing lead vocals a few feet away from the drummer while he was playing live. Instead of us fixing music and fixing the parts and editing and we we did everything pretty live with very very little uh, uh some overdubs the way the beatles did a second guitar double the voice but it was a real experiment for me i'd never done anything like that and as long as i've been a recording artist we, uh, we you know we fix everything we, we a lot of digital editing goes on in the world today but we came up with this record where we followed, we used old microphones, we used old guitars, old amplifiers, old, uh, you know, signal processing and, and, and it came out in mono and I might add it's coming out as a vinyl LP in April, which is what I'm ecstatic about because that's my favorite way to listen to music. But how's that for a short answer? 
That's a good answer. <laughs> Glenn, there's one aspect that you that you didn't mention. Uh, Marty was involved with Gem Records. Yes. Which the older listeners will remember. I'm not sure the younger ones know what that refers to, but Gem Records was a big importer yeah. of British albums right. way back in the 70s. And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, if you went into a record store, it was very likely that you would find Gem Records stickers all over Beatle albums from, you know, Parlophone Beatle albums and, and other British albums and other imports because that's who did the bulk of the importing back then and that's an interesting little connection there between you and between your project and 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 him is yeah. that you know this this whole british aspect this import aspect of the whole thing how did did that play any did that play into the whole thing at all or or, or was it just the the music itself that is the connection uh, well, he, like I said, he he reached out to me. Um, I, I wasn't expecting to, I wasn't looking for a record deal. You know, we we're all still kind of shocked by the whole thing, but um, uh, but I did know uh, Gem Records, and I do have a bunch of Gem imports from the mm-hmm. you know the early seventies, I mm-hmm. guess it was, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and there was a lot of you know a lot of fusion, a lot a lot of uh, power pop and stuff from from Europe at that time. Oh, Pro- yeah. And Prague, a lot of Prague too, but um, yeah. So I I kind of knew Marty that way, but uh, I don't know if it played into it or not. The whole, like I said, the whole thing was like kind of accidental, you know. I, mm-hmm. I it's so funny. It's it's ironic too because you know I, I've spent I've spent years trying to get record deals. You know, before I got my first A and M uh, solo deal together i spent years you know looking for you know, begging for an album deal with a record label and you know and then i've been th- through a few but uh i kind of gave up on it by this point i'm like you know i'm getting i'm like I'm, i'll be 60 next month and um so i've been around the block you know and I, and I did not expect you know to to be approached by any record companies or anything like that and along came marty with pa- uh gem and um you know, I kind of like it that he's an old school record guy himself. Right. That does play into it. You know, his enthusiasm is what got us to go for it because here's this old school record guy and and he's all about the record business, which is an odd business to be into in 2015, you know, but he's he's got he he has some old uh, feelings about how things are promoted and how how you get the word out and stuff like that, and that I think that suits this project because, like I said, we're very into old technology and old songwriting uh, techniques as well. You know, so it's kind of fun. It's it's a very fun project. Hmm. Okay. Glenn, the originals on the album, the six originals, are uh, you mentioned that um, that you and Bob had decided to include some originals were they new songs or were they things that you had had um had written in recent times uh two or three of them we had um and we happened to have written together uh there was one song that's about 20 years old that i i never recorded i always wanted to uh and it was definitely a beetle inspired type song 
which I wasn't trying to hide. <laughs> As a songwriter, I think a lot of pop songwriters in, in the past 50 years have uh, tried to conceal uh, Beatle influence, try to use them without it being too much of a, a lift, you know. But um, mm-hmm. but this one was kind of an exercise in, gee, I'd like to write a Beatles song. But uh, then there's which, about... F- which one was that? Uh, that's Breathing Underwater. Okay. And what's funny about that one is that... Um, I demoed it. I had a really good version of it and stuff like that. And then I showed it to Bob when we were getting ready to record. And he said, you know, who wrote this? And I was like, Bob, you and I wrote this. He, he, <laughs> he had forgotten, you know. But um, uh, then there were three or four new ones. Um, and again, we were very dedicated to this idea of writing and arranging for a quartet. And that really is the, the, the one of the impetuses of this whole thing was the arrangement on those first two Beatle albums um, is wonderful, and it's only a quartet. There's not even much overdubbing by you know George Martin and stuff. I mean, it's it's like it, it really is close to their cavern de- as close to their cavern days as you can get in the studio from them, and there is an excitement that comes with that. So. Um, when we were writing for that, there was a bit of that and we wanted it to be energetic and exciting because those early Beatle albums are just that. Now they're younger men, you know, the, these are guys in their twenties that made those two albums and, and, and these songs that we got that weren't originals that, you know, we, we kind of dug up these demos of theirs for the most part that, they're pretty uh, in, they're like from young innocent writers they weren't the guys yet who wrote Eleanor Rigby and I am the walrus you know it, they still had their foot in uh, late 50s pop and stuff you know and R&B mm-hmm. so you know so we were kind of looking at that when we wrote these new songs of our own we, we wanted to it to all kind of fit together so there was the arrangement to consider and then there was the subject matter and the energy, you know. And um, so that was pretty – that was a really fun part of the project is uh, writing uh, Mona Lisa and Little T's because it was like, no, we we need a hold me tight. You know, I remember saying that. We need a hold me tight on this. And then, yeah, well, we need a, you know, I saw her standing there. We got to have another mm-hmm. – I saw her standing there on this record. And so we sat down mm-hmm. to write it. And – unashamedly you know that was the other thing like i was saying earlier um when you're a songwriter a pop songwriter especially for me because i've written songs for a, a million other artists um sure i've always kind of tried to hide the beetle thing i you know i want it to be lurking underneath but i i don't i never wanted it to be blatant whereas in this project bob and i looked at each other and said Let's just let it out. You know, this is the music we grew up to. This is the music that probably made us into music, want to be musicians. This is the soundtrack of our lives kind of music. And we know it so well. I mean, personally, I've been, you know, I was in Beatlemania in 1978. And since it's been, you know, I've always done a lot of Beatle performing, you know, a lot of Beatle music. So uh, we know this music very, very well. Everybody in the band does. And, and um, it was, you know, it was really fun to kind of uh, unashamedly try to write 
a Lennon and McCartney esque song or six. <laughs> <laughs> Is it also kind of daunting? I mean, you know the stuff well. You've you've played the the Lennon McCartney catalog for for some time, but it, it must also be sort of daunting, even if even if we're talking about something like "Hold Me Tight" as opposed to "I'm the Walrus," to to sit down and say. I want to write something with this kind of spirit and, um, you know, knowing that, that it, it's got to have the sort of hallmarks and energy of, of, of a Beatles song. I don't know. Daunting's not the right word. We enjoyed the process a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was, there was a freedom in it instead of also, instead of trying to be clever, which a lot of songwriting has kind of become like it you, there's so much competition and all of that and and the modern world is a lot more ironic and uh, and clever you know than than things were in the late 50s and early 60s when these guys came up with those songs but um there's an innocence there so we we didn't have to make any grand statements about <laughs> We didn't have to write Imagine There's No Heven. You know, we didn't have mm-hmm. to write Goo Goo Kachoo. We didn't have to, you know, break down any artistic barriers. We just got to draw from this fabulous positivity, this well of energy that um, these young, brilliant musicians uh, spewed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that you've, that you've done this, um, project and the, the, the album um and you were you were talking about the formation of the group as being almost not not quite by happenstance but a but a bit uh, do you see it now as a going concern and uh you know more albums forthcoming yeah if it's this much fun i don't see why not like we we've been playing a lot now and and it gives us a license to you know perform here and there um and it's fun having a, a new record out, you know, and it's getting played on satellite and uh, terrestrial radio stations a bit. And that's just exciting. And like I said, I mean, to have a vinyl record coming out is, uh, you know, that's that's a real gas. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Glenn, um, the six songs that you covered, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you tried to stick to the songs that were for the most part, less familiar. I mean, the hardcore Beatle fans are going to know them anyway. But you didn't go into, say, A World Without Love mm. or Bad to Me. Did you do that intentionally because those were so well-known? Did you really want to keep it the lesser-known material? Not really. We went for the stuff that we thought we could do justice to that would be fun to record and fun to listen to. Yeah, I mean, World Without Love would possibly be more commercial or um better known you know but that you know it was this entire project has been a surprise and and you know the fact that i'm even talking to you guys about it is kind of a a trip um so (laughs) i i the you know the idea of of choosing the songs for the audience it was it was as much just you know how how can we have the most fun on this and how can we make the coolest the record that we want to make and you do have that in the in, in the Beatle fan world, of which that's a huge you know demographic. Um, the uh, you know the everybody knows these songs and and worships them. You know we we belong to a cult. You realize a religion practically, and and <laughs> and you know um, so people who do know these songs 
it's a bit of a twist. You know, we have, well, first of all, we did rearrange these songs. Some of them are very different than the way that the Beatles demos were. But, um, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of Beatles tribute acts in the world and bands that work very, very hard. And I've done this a lot myself to try to emulate every sound, to try to recreate every mix of every album live. You know, there's just tons of that out there. But, you know, we've fallen into this little niche uh, of, I mean, and other people have done this. Other people have re-recorded Beatle demos, but we're, we're adding this uh, original side to it. So it's just, it's kind of a vanity project that's, you know, on acid. <laughs> I guess. I, I, Glenn, yeah, you brought up a point about rearranging the songs. The one that really hit me hard was If You Got Trouble, yeah. which is a horrible song the way they did it. <laughs> and you guys actually made it sound good. I couldn't, I was sitting there listening to it and go, God, I actually like the song. This is great. You know, what did you, um, was there something specific you did with that, that particular song? Or was it just a kind of a, you know, the, you did all the same things with all of them or, but that one well, sounded, it really sounded good. You really did a good job with that one. Well, thanks. Uh, I just want to say under no circumstances will I ever be quoted as having said any song by Lennon and McCartney was horrible, but um <laughs> That, you said that, not me. But um, <laughs> it, let's put it this way. It's not one of their finer songwriting moments. No. And um, right. But uh, w- what really happened was um, one funny thing about the Weaklings, which is a guy named John Merjavi. John plays lead guitar. Bob Berger, who plays rhythm guitar, harmonica. And Dave Anthony played the drums. And myself, um, one interesting thing is that we are kind of Beatlesque characters. The drummer is kind of the guy that doesn't really get into the creative, you know, thinking as much, but does contribute a groove. The uh, gu- the lead guitarist, he he sings an occasional song, but he's not the main guy. But boy, is he great with the harmonies and guitar parts. Bob sings and writes, and I sing and write. And Bob might, I don't know, might be a little edgier, and I might be a little more melodic. I'm not sure about that. But I happen to be left-handed, so I got that. But in any case, we do have, <laughs> we, you know, we're slightly Beatlesque uh, personality-wise. So, um, you know, that kind of, so what that meant was we needed a Ringo song. And if you got troubles was, you know, we were looking at the, uh, the choices for what song would our Ringo sing. And, you know, if you got trouble was, uh, was one of them. And, and we all realized that it's not the Beatles favorite song of their own either. Thus, they never put it on a record until anthology. But, um, we, you know, we looked at it and said, well, maybe we can make something out of this, you know? And so we polished it up a little bit and added a little, uh, some elements of some later Beatles, you know, and uh, and kind of served it up on a platter that way. Yeah, it, it, you, did, you did a really good job with that one. Well, let's uh, actually let's uh, 
take a couple of other covers there and right. one and one is two yeah. and it's for you uh you kind of subtly change the the approach of the original records yes of those two uh yeah. you know one and one is two is almost slowed down to kind of like a shuffle beat and yeah. it's for you is much more spare than the Silla Black record. Right. I I really love the Silla Black record. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a fan of Silla Blacks. Um, the so I I felt very strongly that we, you know, I thought the record could use one of those dark John Lennon "There's a Place" kind of songs, you know, mm -hmm. haunting. And so we we added "It's for You" and. And we said, well, instead of making it sound like a Burt Backrack song, uh, you know, let's try to get closer to, you know, John Lennon with an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. And it kind of led us to do the song that way, as opposed to, I think that, you know, it sounded to me like what Scylla Black was trying to do was a Burt Backrack, Hell David kind of thing. But, mm -hmm. um, and one in one, yeah, the arrangement, um, we wanted to make it, yeah. We, we we wanted to make it a little uh, updated and more interesting. It, it sounded to me like they didn't they didn't really finish that song because they didn't have a bridge, a middle eight, as they would call it. It's just like two verses, and you know, it goes around a couple of times. That was a song that was recorded by was it the foremost Mike and, Shannon yeah, and yeah, yeah. the and yeah, I the forget strangers. the name of the group, the Strangers. Yes, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. and um. But even that kind of left us thinking, you know what, it, we could beef this up a little bit. You know, we can add a little petrol. And mm -hmm. um, and so, we, you know, so we, we took some arrangement uh, chances, but um, it's a really fun song. And I think we pumped some energy into it. I, I, I should probably point out that my girlfriend really does not like the lyric. She thinks it's kind of uh, juvenile. <laughs> but... Um, mm -hmm. I think that's part of the charm of the record. <laughs> the funny thing is, is that one of the very early Beatles books, a book called Love Me Do by a fellow named Michael Braun, who toured with the Beatles in the fall of 63 and in Paris and the U.S. in early 64, he actually, in one of the chapters, he describes uh, John and Paul writing it in their in the the suite they were in in Paris. Wow! And I, I, yeah, and and, and it does from his description. It it sounded like it was very much incomplete. Ah, yeah. Well, they were incredibly uh, prolific in that era. They were writing songs in hotels and buses and everything else. Exactly. You know, they, and uh, and their output was amazing. And so it's completely possible that. You know, they got to a certain point with a song like that and looked around and said, do we love it? No. Do we want it for ourselves? No. Yeah. You know, yeah. let's, it's good enough as it is. Let's give it to somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. There's a, there's a huge difference, I think, between writing a song that the band rejects and just gives to someone else than writing a song specifically for someone. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to say, Glenn, one of the, the, uh, aspects of the Beatles careers that I find even more fascinating than before are the songs that they wrote for other people. Mm. And that's also in their solo careers. You know, as I study them more, especially with It's For You, It's For You, you were bringing up Burt Bacharach and Hal David. That song always, to me, has had more of um, a theatrical uh, kind of feel to it. Yeah. 
I can even hear like Shirley Bassey singing sure. it, someone like that. Yeah. But it was, it was for as, as far as the composition is concerned, it's it seems a lot more complicated for its time, or certainly what pop groups were writing, than the other pop music that Lennon and McCartney were writing at the time. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, there are songs, they're haunting songs like I'll Be Back and There's a Place, or, the, you know, those songs that just kind of strike me as haunting and they're in minor keys, uh, like It's For You. It's just, uh, they're a little darker, they're probably more Lennon than Paul. And, um, you know, just kind of... Um, you know, there is that flavor that they had, but, uh, yeah, in that case, they, they wrote that for Scylla. It seems like they definitely wrote it for her. Mm. Yeah. Great stuff though. I love, I love that, that side of their work for sure. Right. Well, the Scylla Black stuff was more Paul's. Well, that's true. His compositions. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Although it's for you, you know, I wonder, yeah, that might've been, uh, the two of them, unless you guys know differently. Um, mm. I've always wondered about that because you've probably heard that little um, promo record that they sent out in which on one side, John introduces It's For You, Paul introduces I Don't Want to Peter and Gordon's I Don't Want to See You Again, which, right. we know, mm. which we know Paul wrote. So I've always wondered if maybe John wrote more of It's For You. Uh, it sounds like John to me. Yeah, but, exactly. You know. But the chord changes are a little more ambitious, so that makes it, you know, that that's a vote for Paul there. Yeah. yeah. I think melodically it's more Paul to me. Could be. I just mm. hear it as, you know. I mean, you know, uh, I, yeah, I, you, you raise a good point about songs they wrote for others. Um, uh, I know that like Panina, for instance, which isn't on this record, we haven't recorded it yet, but I do love that song. I'm not sure how, what to do with it, but... Um, you know, I don't even know that Paul was looking, writing that for somebody else. But there's things like that that are just surprising and different that that dramatic, you know, that they could write for uh, they could write as well as being, you know, the little boy band of the 60s. You know? Yeah. Well, beyond it's for you when he wrote Step Inside Love. Yeah. Which I really like. I mean, that has a real jazz feel to it. Great. Maybe maybe he felt that it was something that the Beatles couldn't couldn't uh people wouldn't accept as a Beatles song so we can stretch a little bit more creatively when he's writing for someone else maybe i guess so a- early on i think they were self-conscious that way but by the time they got to the white album all bets were off you know they were so experimental musically that you know it was it, it was a waterfall you know of music hmm Glenn, I was going to switch subjects and ask you about Liverpool since you've been with Liverpool. Um, you guys are always playing with some great people. Um, anybody stick out, you know, in the time that you played with them? You know, any 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 really interesting performances or stories? Well, being, you know, being kind of a, a his, you know, Beatle history fan, to perform with Klaus Vormann is huge to me. Mm. Uh, mm. And and then the other thing that comes to mind is Norman Smith to have played, oh. uh, you know, Oh Babe, What Would You Say? While, <laughs> while Hurricane Smith himself was singing <laughs> in his 90s, I might add. Uh, oh, my God. To, to his wife of all, like, for 60 years or something insane, you know, like, it was 
the sweetest and most amazing moment of your life when you realize here's the guy that you know he captured uh, you know some of the some of my favorite records ever you know and he was mm. you know it was like so and and thinking about you know, just thinking about also playing with the the guy who really discovered the Beatles you know when Klaus walked into that club in Hamburg and then went and got his girlfriend and brought her back and that led to mm-hmm their ph- photographic style and their hairstyle. And, you know, I don't know, man. It just, it seemed to me like he was the first guy from out of nowhere that said, wait a minute, something's happening here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did you play with Billy Preston too when he did the, uh, did the fest? No, I'm sorry to say that by the time I was there, uh, he had brought his own group with him, but, I'm a super Billy fan and uh, he just, he slayed me. I've, I've actually seen him a number of times in concert forever for years. Um, and it was, it was maybe a f- like two or three months later that he passed away from the time. Mm-hmm. I but uh, yeah, he's a God in my eyes, that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I remember, um, I remember when he was in LA um, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. It was great to see him, you know, do that you know, play get back and stuff like that, you know? Um, yeah. He, uh, what a resume that guy, you know, Ray Charles, little Richard, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, you know, not bad, <laughs> not bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised there hasn't been a movie on his life. I know there's a lot of drama in his life actually too. I mean, he was in and out of mm. jail and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, after he was like number one, cause he, he had some number one hits, uh, he, he wound up in prison. I mean, just like, Unbelievable stuff, you know. Mm. Good idea. Let's make it. Let's make that movie. <laughs> yeah. When you um, uh, when you talked to Klaus, when you were playing with Klaus, did did, uh, did you have an opportunity to talk to him much about those Hamburg days that, that you were describing and, and discovering them? And... No, you know, I I didn't want to be too much a fanboy, but I did hang out with him a bit and and just to kind of got it to know his vibe. The one question that I remember asking him about was uh, the artwork and, mm. and asking him, like, uh, asking him, okay, Klaus, what was the difference? What was the, ex- the difference in the experience of uh, creating the revolver cover and creating the anthology covers? To which uh, he said that, first of all, revolver, he just kind of did it. And everybody in the band said, hey, I like it. You like it? Yeah, I guess I like it. Let's use it. Um, He said, however, the anthology thing, he had to make a presentation. And uh, he was up against – it was a bidding war of sorts. And he was up against these other artists and firms and graphic design companies and stuff because everybody wanted that. And and then he got it. But then – very interesting. If you know how the anthology cover is separate, you can separate it and you can all put it together as well. Mm-hmm. He said that um, he was hearing from the estates of each beetle, the attorneys representing them. And if there were more pictures of one beetle than another mm-hmm. on one of the segments of the album, you know, like, you know, because it was like one big piece, you know, mm-hmm. then he would have a problem. So he, it was a puzzle 
for him to make sure that you had equal, you know, likenesses on the covers in any form, which is, that's pretty tricky stuff, you know, so that, and to which he said that was a pain in the ass. But (laughs) 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 and then then he covered it all, he wrapped it all up with, but I got paid so much more money for anthology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas he said it was a couple of hundred bucks for a revolver uh, wow. forever. You know, like he, he, he never got any extra money. They just gave him a couple of hundred bucks and that was it. You know? okay. One of the big surprises in Mark Lewison's book for, for me was um, that when the Beatles were in that brief period where Stu had left and Paul hadn't yet taken up the base and they weren't sure what they were going to do, that, that Klaus had actually – really seriously lobbied to join the group that would have been yeah. something yeah. <laughs> you bet you bet but but then there's also the story where he was with them in the studio when they were cutting the basic track when they were recording hey jude mm-hmm. and somebody turned to klaus and said klaus play bass to which klaus said nah i can't i can't you know it's a beetle record i can't do that huh. so he he, he and, that's, and that's what he said he said that he turned it down so interesting. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. I wonder who asked him. <laughs> I'm going to guess Paul, but I don't know. Hmm. Maybe because by then, maybe John was starting to, you know, zone out. You know, he ended up playing bass on that song, but uh, I'm going to guess, you know, this is not. I guess we got to wait for the next Mark Lewison book to find out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that might be, be that. Might it'll be, be one after that. It'll be. Yeah. The third. Oh, that's right. The yeah, third one, the yeah. third book. Oh my so we're God. talking about 24 or 30 years. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> we may not be alive by that. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to need to get him to, you know, to up the uh, timeline on that thing, really, so that we can all get to read it. Yeah. He's yeah. So he's so compl- he's such a completist. Oh, amazing! Yeah. Absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. Glenn, you mentioned uh, the, the uh, you know, you mentioned Beatlemania before. Yeah. Uh, now, that was kind of, you know, un, untapped, uh, you know, ground in 1977 and 78. What do you remember about that whole experience? Well, I, I was not the original Broadway cast. Right. Starters. So the, the show was on for about a year or two already mm-hmm. uh, on Broadway. And I lived in New Jersey. I was aware of the show. I was aware that it was successful. And I had a low opinion of the idea of guys acting, trying to act like the Beatles with phony accents. Yeah. And, uh, and But somebody, well, there was an ad in the Village Voice that they were still looking for, you know, for guys to do it. And the idea of playing on Broadway, definitely, instead of the little divey bars that I was you know, performing at, at the time, mm-hmm. playing cover songs. Like it was like, well, maybe the money will be good. You know, let me go. I'm left-handed, you know? So, um, I went in, I did the audition. They liked me and they said, well, come see the show. And then when I sat in the audience of a beautiful Broadway, historic Broadway house and watched these guys come on and do the Beatles pretty dedicatedly, you know, it was, it was, it was actually, uh, it was just a lot more intense, you know, their, their attention, the attention to detail was good. Mm-hmm. And 
So that was an early tribute. It was kind of kicked off a lot of the tribute act world. But uh, in any case, then I wanted to do the show because it just kind of hit me being the age I am growing up with that music in my past. You know, it was just like, yeah, sure. Why wouldn't I want to be a fake beetle? You know, (laughs) (laughs) so I, you know, it was it was a it was a really great thing. The other thing is. I've always said I didn't go to college. I went to Beatlemania. I have my friends. Uh, I still am very close with, you know, some of the guys that I worked with in Beatlemania. And uh, it's like a fraternity, you know. Mm-hmm. My band, because there were these different bands, these different bunks, and there were three shows going on at the time. So there were two bands per show. So there was a production in New York on Broadway. That, that's two bands. There was a production in Chicago. They had two bands and there was a production in LA, two bands. But my band, Marshall Crenshaw was my John is, you know, the way it goes. It mm-hmm. sounds like he was my, you know, right. Right. prostitute. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, um, uh, and Marshall and I remain fr- very good friends to this day. I've, you know, written songs with him on his records. I've toured with him and, and, you know, we're just, we're just old, old friends. And, and so that part of my life in a way hasn't gone away. In fact, I saw you a couple you and Marshall a couple of years ago, you played BB Kings in New York. Ah, and uh, just after the new year and with, uh, with Liberty DeVito playing drums for you. Oh, that must have been a Beatle gig. Yeah, we we uh, that was the Incredible Simulators. We yes, yeah. and wasn't there a third one? I'm trying to remember. There was wasn't there a third guy in there, or was it well, just you and Marshall? And no, Liv? no, there, there, it was either it was probably John Merjavi, who's now in the Weaklings with me, who's also in Liverpool. In Liverpool, right? Yeah, John is like a you know he's like a walking encyclopedia of uh, Beatle guitar parts and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was probably him as well yeah i you know but i am i am a member of a fraternity of beetle musicians and and it's sure. uh, you know so that's very interesting to me i mean this is part of my my thing and i've i've subbed for uh, i've done a number of shows subbing for members of the fab foe for instance right and, you know those guys are all friends of mine as well you know and mm-hmm. there's and there's the the, the band rain I was in that band for like years and years ago, though, for about two years I spent in that band. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that it's funny. I am, you know, like I said, I, I didn't go to college. I went to Beatlemania. Yeah. And the funny, funny thing is you're actually not even the first member of Beatlemania to play in Liverpool, in the, in the band That's Liverpool. Right. That's because right. Because Mitch Wiseman was... Yeah, was in there before. Before That's right. you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. How different are the arrangements and band to band? I mean, some of the the bands try to um, stay very close to the Beatles versions, and some depart a bit more. But um, for instance, when you were in, went to Beatlemania, did they hand you charts and say it has to be these positions and it has to be, you know, exactly this this arrangement? Yeah, there was an attention to detail that I hadn't seen elsewhere when it came to doing covers, you know. Um, And I know that the story there is that when they were putting the show together, they didn't really know what they had either. Uh, Lieber and Krebs Mm -hmm. were the the managers who Mm -hmm. kind of put it together. Uh, They hired some 
Broadway arranger guy to come in and, you know, arrange the strings and the horns and, and stuff like that. And initially the backup keyboard player, Andy Dorfman heard what this guy was doing to Beatle music. And, and he threw a, a small tantrum that the rest of the original cast went along with. And it was like, no, 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 we, we want to do it right you know, we, we hold these records to be, you know, uh, again, from the cult, yeah. uh, you know, we, we this is the uh, the canon, the, the holy canon here. And, you know, we need these we need to get as close to this as we can. So it really came from these young musician fans of the Beatles who um, who kind of insisted that they, they come as close to it as possible. Now, since and there were there were. There were inaccuracies with Beatle Mania as well. So I have spent the lifetime digging out all of these details. And, you know, and, and certainly for all of us fans, the, um, there have been a lot of bootleg copies of, uh, you know, the isolated soloed tracks. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we all, and especially the musicians, we dive into that to find out that, whoa, McCartney's not playing this bass note there, he's playing that bass note. And, 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 you know, and it's kind of solved arguments, which, by the way, though, the arguments continue, and everybody's, everybody's going to the same college on this, you know. The Randy Bachman explanation of the opening chord of <laughs> yeah. Hard Day's Night. Right. I was just explaining to some musicians the other night that, well, it's been refuted. There is an explanation that... Randy has it wrong. So it's like, like you know, so it, yeah. is, it, it is a bit like this ongoing mystery that, you know, the, we're getting down to the minutiae, you know, uh, as, as close as we can to the minutiae, which is what the weaklings did in the studio. We, you know, we were trying to use the right gauge strings on our guitars and stuff like that. And we, you know, we're all um, deep followers of the recording the Beatles book. And, you know, it's just it's really out of control and uh, and somewhat psychologically uh, disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny when 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 I was a kid and playing in bands and we would just sort of get the the arrangements sort of by ear off the records. But you make a lot of mistakes and you make a lot of assumptions that are wrong or or you you play what's sort of easiest to play in a certain way. And then. in the nineties when I was, I was doing a book about the Beatles. I took out that white book. You probably, I'm sure you have it yeah. by those three Japanese guys who transcribed everything. Right. And yeah. that, that has errors too, but a lot of it, you know, all of the chord voicings and, and, and positions um, are probably close to right And playing through that. It, it just, you know, I ended up doing more playing than, than the writing I was supposed to be doing because it was like, well, this feels really good. You can see why these songs work so well, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, no, the, Did, well, and even that book now is, I, I consider that book uh, not so good. But that, but I didn't really? back then. Yeah, but they did great work. They worked hard on it, but the bar has been raised, you know? So someone has to do an update then. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I guess so. You're right. Let's do that too. Okay. Right, go. We got a movie deal and a book deal. Okay. Yeah. There we go. There we go. This is a very productive podcast. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Glenn, just out of curiosity, I mean, you said that you don't really want to see 
a Beatles tribute band that tries to sound like them and, and dress like them and, and that kind of a band. But, you know, would you prefer to see, if you were to go to see a Beatles tribute band of your choice, would you want to see one that really nails the parts and really studies it? Or would you rather see something completely different? Would you rather see musicians that kind of uh, take the Beatles in their own direction? And, you know, how do you feel about that? Because there's so many different types of tribute bands that are out there now. And it's big business. It really is. Yeah. I'm, well, first of all, I'm a bit jaded, you know, because, uh, you know, I've I've been around it a lot. I've done it myself. And, and a lot of times when we, you know, guys like me, you know, when we go see another Beatle band, we're, we're looking for the mistakes. We're, we're looking mm. for, mm. oh, no, he's got that wrong, you know. But that's an unrealistic format. You know, when Paul McCartney himself goes out to play, he's not thinking about the exact way that he phrased anything. He's performing the way a true musician, a true artist should perform, you know. So there's a bit, you know, this cover band part of trying to capture these recordings. It's a little bit unnatural in a way, you know, because it's it's not written music. And even, you know, even when you when you want to do a, a Beethoven symphony, there are arguments about the right way to do it. Do you use the instrumentation the way he wrote it? Do you use the timings, the metronomic timings that Beethoven wrote? on the scores or do you do what seems to sound best for the orchestra and the audience? I mean, there, there's a million ways to interpret all this stuff. And at this stage in my life, I am much more impressed when I hear an incredible bluegrass version of in my life or something, you know, like to me that tickles me. And, uh, you know, as a musician, that, that's just more interesting to me. But um, but then uh, I, it is very satisfying when somebody can emulate my favorite records in the world. It, it, it is a bit, you know, it's Busman's Holiday type stuff where uh, I'm very close to that. When I see a guy do a great Jimi Hendrix rendition that comes close to the record that thrills me more than seeing yet another Beatles tribute act try to do every note on whatever <laughs> on yeah. on some other Beatles song. You know, I, I'm I'm a bit jaded, like I said. Well, matter of fact, just thinking in those terms, what do you think of since? two-thirds of Paul's current set is basically Beatles songs. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of this band that he's been playing with longer than he played with the Beatles or Wings? I think it's his best band yet, mm -hmm. um, at least for doing that stuff. But, you know, uh, player for player, it's a really great band. And mm -hmm. um, so it's enjoyable, and it's, and it, and it's more... Um, kind of more professional. Now, is it as innovative as Wings were, or the Beatles for that matter? Um, certainly not, but because it's a whole different format, you know, formula that, that you know, Paul's the front man. He's Elvis, he's Bruce Springsteen or right. Michael Jackson up there, you know, and he's got a bat and he's got the supporting cast, you know. But as far as his interpretation of his own songs, I think 
Uh, I got nothing but good to say about the originator doing his own music any mm -hmm. screaming way that he wants to. <laughs> um, and I might add something else. These tribute acts, of which I have made a living doing from time right. to time, you know, everybody approaches wanting to sound like, and but especially vocally. Paul McCartney is the guy that sang it, and there are just things about his voice that are irreplaceable. So when you hear him singing a song of his own, and even if he's having a hard time and he's not in good voice that night, it, there's still there's the authenticity that, you know, you just can't argue with, I think. Did you have the same reaction, though, that some of us had when he appeared on Saturday Night Live and was <laughs> you know, audibly having problems there on the first, say, the first eight bars of Maybe I'm Amazed after having played the night before yeah. at, uh, you know, uh, you know that, uh, that surprise gig. Yeah, I do know. Well, you know, we all have studied so much about these guys. You know, like when I met him, I met Paul and I've met Ringo. Uh, mm -hmm. When you meet these guys... Yeah, I'm I'm looking into his eyes. I'm talking to him. I'm shaking his hand, and I'm thinking, I've seen this guy all my life. I've seen more photos of this guy than I've seen of like people in my family, sure. and and he's never laid his <laughs> eyes on me before. But I know how his mother died, and I know you know, and everything. I think I know now after the Mark Lewison book. I think I know who he lost his virginity to, and it's like <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> It's just unbelievable. It's very unfair that, you know, I should know as much about this guy and he's just meeting me and being cordial, you know. Yeah. But um, one of the things that I – one of my opinions about him is that he doesn't really take care of his voice and he doesn't really consider it that big a deal. So, uh, whereas the rest of us, like he, I've had a lifetime of struggling, you know, keeping my voice – in good shape so that I can try to hit these atmospheric notes that he just comes out with, you know, mm. <laughs> on a record, you know, to, to try to sing like someone else, it, you know, requires a little more self-discipline and he's not really tuned in. He's not really wired like that at all. No. He just does what he does and he's always done what he, that way. And he, he, it reminds me of his, um, his answer to George Martin about writing music, because Martin suggested, you know, that he should write, that he should learn to compose, you know, using music staff. And 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 he's like, nah, that's going to mess me up. If I learn that, it it will, you know, screw up my process. And I, so I just I, he does what he does. And he's a, he doesn't want to learn outside of anything. He just wants to play it by ear and uh be work on inspiration and that's fine but uh it's undisciplined and um so the idea of him singing poorly live on <laughs> global television it's not the first time that he's kind of <laughs> had that problem sure you know? i remember the cavern thing that he did with dave gilmore yeah. probably about 20 25 years ago mm -hmm. it was the it was the same kind of thing it was like Paul, you know, you really should have, you should have prepared for this, you know? Um, and, uh, I don't think he gives it a, a lot of thought enough. Well, a lot of thought, you know, like I said, far be it for me who just recorded an album of songs of his, you know, to want to complain about the way he does things. But, um, 
I think that, yeah, I think he's a little lax in, in the self-discipline department regarding his singing voice from time to time. Mm-hmm. That's kind of shocking when you've also heard that he's, he's supposed to be a perfectionist. Well, there you go. I think that everybody has their own, they contain, we all contain our own opposites. And, and I think that there's probably a perfectionist side of him, definitely. And there's also a stoned out hippie side to him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you a, a very basic question here, and it's, it's kind of a loaded question, but you've studied the Beatles your whole life, and you've played in all these bands where you're, you, you know the parts, you know the bass lines. I'm sure that, you know, as a student of the music, and not just a fan, after all these years, what is it about that catalog? Is there anything in particular that impresses you more and more now as you get older, having learned it as a musician? Well, uh, you know, overall, I guess a quick answer would be versatility. You know, there, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's just unfathomable to me. Like everybody else in the 60s, you know, maybe there were a couple of artists that had a little bit of a run, maybe three or four hits records, but but rarely is there an act like the Beatles that just kept rewriting the book of popular music with every single. You know, it's like every time they they would put out another single they or album, they would challenge themselves into recreating who they were practically. You know, especially when you got from paperback writer on where everything was just um, each with each release. I remember waiting for these albums to come out. I remember one time seeing the list of titles of the songs in the White Album and thinking, what the hell is this going to be? Like, you know, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill and, you know, like <laughs> these ridiculous Rocky Raccoon, like, you know, you're just getting over, you know, Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper and you're reading these titles and they were like a, you know, a completely different band by then. So I, I, overall, their versatility is astounding to this day. And as time goes by, um, recognizing that the music isn't really uh, losing much credibility with younger audiences. Mm. And it's pop music made for teenagers. That's what they were intending. But, I mean, still, there's new generations that... Uh, that do kind of get get it, you know? Right. We should talk about just a couple of the, the original songs, if we could. So who would like to would ask that. a question? Cool. One of, the, one of the tracks that really caught my attention was Little Tease because it sounds so much like uh, Twist and Shout. What uh, was the, for, you know, what happened there to, you know, how did that come about? How did that, what did you go in thinking? How, did you go in thinking, you know, we're going to do Twist and Shout or did it just kind of develop? Uh, along the way or well I, first of all I love that you think that it reminds you of Twist and Chap because how great is that record and um, mm. I always thought I was under the impression that Little Tease w- was more like I saw her standing there but I'll take L- Twist and Chap as well um, I, it, basically at that point we had already written some of the other rockers like uh, Mona Lisa and but I felt uh, you know, we felt like we needed another rocker 
because those albums, those early Beatle albums that we were kind of modeling our music on were so energetic and up-tempo and like these kids that were bursting out of the scene, you know? So it was kind of like, let's, let's write a rocker, you know, let's, um, let's really something that you stomp to, which is, that was a part of their early sound. And I think it came from Hamburg as well. The, the stomp, you know, a lot of their early songs had this pulse that uh, basically it was like thump, 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 thump. And, and um, so little tease has that as does Mona Lisa, another one of the originals. Um, and that, that was basically the exercise. Let's write a, a track that, you know, kicks butt. That's as, as energetic as I saw her standing there, or if you will, a twist and shout, you know, I have to tell you that one of the highest compliments I've had, people will tell me that they, they can't tell the difference between which songs are not written by Lennon McCartney or Harrison and which songs are written by Bob and myself. And, (laughs) you know, that's a high compliment. So anytime anything is compared to or mistaken for, uh, their music, um, you know, how can I not uh, be thrilled, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, for Little T's, I, I hear not only I saw her standing there, and, and, and the bass playing in that song is just like I saw her standing there. And um, you also mix that with boys. Yes. With all absolutely. the bop shoe-ups. Absolutely. So that's what I hear. Yeah, and, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And Blue Suede Schubert. <laughs> I like it, man. That's good. <laughs> I see what you and Bob, you and Bob need to write with Neil Innes. That's what that. Is. I, you know, I, I know, <laughs> I know Neil, and and I don't. You know, I kind of sent him an email asking if he wanted to listen to the record and stuff, and he hasn't gotten back to me. I, don't, I, I don't think he's really interested in yet another. Beatle project or something. I don't know. He just, he, I'm guessing, I'm speculating because he hasn't gotten back to me. But um, he, in my opinion, he came up with the best tribute to the Beatles of all time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just kidding when I said that. <laughs> by the way. It's not a, hey, I'll do, I'd love to. Are you kidding me? <laughs> mm. um, one quick question. There is an original song here of yours. Uh, called O, with an exclamation point, Darla. <laughs> so obviously, you, that's a play there on Oh Darling. I mean, the song is nothing like Oh Darling, but you even had the exclamation point. Was that done deliberately? Well, certainly the title was. I have a daughter named Darla, who was named uh, after Darla Hood of the Little Rascals, for that matter. But Ah, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah but... um. And this was a song I wrote for my daughter that I, this predated the Weaklings album. This was a a song I had laying around, but I always felt that it was, I always felt like it was an early McCartney-ish kind of song. And, and, um, and, you know, the chorus I'm singing Darla, oh Darla. And then when I looked at it and I saw it in a font, (laughs) I just figured, you know what, why don't I put the X, explanation point there and mm-hmm. and you know that adds a little nod and a wink to the Beatle fans out there which 
is I guess really our audience. You know, I guess uh, the weaklings have made a record that's kind of an inside. I don't want to say joke, but it's it, it, it's an inside you know secret club we got with other Beatle aficionados. Even to the point where you you gave each of you Wilbury type names. Yes, we have. Uh, you know, we're also known as alter egos. Right. I'm Lefty, uh, Lefty Weakling, and uh, Bob is Zeke Weakling, and uh, John is Rocky Weakling, and the drummer is Ramblin' Dave Weakling. And we refer to each other as these names all the time. That's the law. And um, <laughs> on, on stage, we're not allowed to call each other anything else. And, you know, it's uh, and that's just fun, too. The, the cover of the album is a cartoon, and I'm enjoying that, too. Um, First of all, cartoons probably look better than the way we look as, you know, 60-year-old men. But um, it's just uh, there is this kind of zaniness, zaniness to this project. And uh, mm. we recognize that as well. In fact, uh, that cartoon was, was drawn by Anthony Parisi, who is, I think, a Facebook friend of several of us. And and a great uh, Beatle cartoonist. He's yes. A, yeah, he's a really great Beatle cartoonist. That's why I reached out to him because I've met him through these conventions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and I said, Anthony, you know, you know, he has that '60s style, and he certainly knows the Beatles. Uh, he's a fan, so yeah. he he seemed to be a good choice, and and I love the artwork. Mm -hmm. hmm. What are you guys going to be? Are you guys are going to be at the fest? Um, have you got any plans after the fest, Glenn? We have some shows, um, just live shows, mo mostly in the New York, New Jersey area. What's funny is that uh, I also play in a band called The Orchestra, which contains former members of Electric Light Orchestra. And, mm. and, we, and we play, you know, and I'm the bassist slash singer in that band. And, and, um, we tour all, all over the world. It's a great gig. It's and that's lovely music, and you know very Beatlesque somewhat. You know, and um, we uh, so in any case, we're playing. The orchestra is playing Abbey Road on the River, and we we the Weaklings were going to play there, but by the time we got it together with him, he didn't really have a good place for you know like a a good presentation. So I was like, well. You know, maybe some other time, but uh, but I am getting to play that for the first time. Uh, I've never been to the Abbey Road on the River thing, and I hear good things about it, so I'm looking forward to playing with the orchestra there. But um, yeah, and otherwise, you know, the Weaklings, we have a lot of groundwork to to do. You know, like we, we can record albums and stuff like that, but we're, right now uh, we have a a, a small live following, uh, a good one, you know, but. But we we have a lot of building to do if this is going to have any legs uh, in as in terms of a live uh, you know act. Mm -hmm. In mm. fact, one upcoming show that you have is at the Bitter End in <laughs> Greenwich in Greenwich Village. Yeah, yeah. And wow, if that if that brick wall could talk, <laughs> I know the people that have played in front of that. Oof. I know, mm -hmm. yeah. I think I got a Peter, Paul, and Mary album where they're exactly in their, front first, of that, their right. first album. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, right. I was recently there because 
there there is a bartender that works there sometimes who looks exactly like Marilyn Monroe. So you you guys got to check it out. But anyway, but uh, I I was there and I was I was looking behind the bar and and there you know how they have paintings of like famous people who have played the place. Sure. There's uh there's Bill Cosby and Woody Mm -hmm. Allen right next to each other and I'm looking (laughs) at. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm just thinking, wow, check that oh, out. My. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Glenn, who's 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 in the orchestra beside you? Mick Kaminsky, who was the viol- mm-hmm. the lead violinist in Electric Light Orchestra. And uh Lewis Clark, who did all of the uh string arrangements for the band. The originally when I first joined, Bev Bevan was the drummer and he eventually left. And then and then Actually, the way I joined was that uh, Kelly Grokert, who was the original drummer. I mean, no, he was the original bass player. Bev Bevan was the original drummer. Kelly Grokert uh, passed away. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a spinal tap thing where they, you know, I got the gig because one of the original members of ELO uh, passed away. But in any case, I got the gig. And um, so it was one by one. It's kind of like guys are kind of falling off and dying but the uh, but it it, it it it's a band that used to have like five former members of ELO and now it's down to two. But in any case, uh, it is fun playing those songs and and there is a calling for it. You know, Jeff Lynn doesn't he doesn't play out a lot, and mm-hmm. and we've been you know touring all over the world. Uh, I've played you know I've played in Russia three times now with them and Eastern mm-hmm. Europe and South America and just all over the place. So it's that that's a really fun gig. I believe Mick Kaminsky played with somebody that I've taught that I talked to a few years ago named Tina McBain. Does that name ring a bell to you? You know who Absolutely. she is? Absolutely. Yeah. She yeah. was to anyone who doesn't know, she I first heard of her when she was with a group called the Eleanor Rigby Experience and they did a mar- two marvelous albums using steel eye span sound on Beatles songs. And if that sounds weird, you have to hear the songs. They were absolutely stunning. That's and cool unfortunately, stuff. yeah, I, I, she's still gigging, I think, in England. But I don't. And she was, they, she was working with Mick, I think, a couple of years ago. But they're not. I don't know that. I haven't heard from her recently, so I don't know what she's doing now. But that was that was pretty awesome. And, and I know there was a, a an ELO connection to it because she she mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. But, yeah. So you sing all the, the Jeff Lynne lead vocals? I share them with uh, a guy named Parthenon Huxley, who's, who's had a career as a uh, producer and a singer-songwriter, and Eric Troyer, who is a, uh, who's had a good career as a studio singer. And if you listen to Woman by John Lennon, you'll hear Eric prominently as the background voices. Um, mm. So he's, yeah, he's been on a... a and, but he's also been on like Total Eclipse of the Heart and a bunch of you know Uptown Girl and mm. a, bu- a bunch of other studio stuff. He, uh, he got hired a lot by Phil Ramone and and on these different records. Julian, I believe he's on uh, the first Julian album. But in any case, yeah, these guys. There's a couple of you know. There's three of us singers, and we're passing stuff around. I'm happy to report that I get to sing Mr. Blue Sky, which to me. Oh, wow is the ultimate ELO <laughs> yeah. Beatle, Beatle wannabe moment, you know? Yeah. It's amazing how much that song has taken on a whole new life now. Yeah. Because when it first came out, it was really a minor hit in America. 
it was more of a hit in the UK. Yeah. And it's been included in a lot of uh, films, and, and it's a staple part. Whenever you see Jeff Lynne perform, which isn't that often, but like just now when he was on um, the, Grammy, the, Grammy, the Grammy Awards, yeah. he made sure he did that song. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's a great song, and I'm glad to see that it's been recognized more through the years. He's, he's yeah, of course, he's super talented, but I think that's his masterpiece, that one. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's there's a lot of them. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> He's made a lot of masterpieces. Yeah. I tell you one thing: this the song "Tightrope," which I think is one of the the greatest mm. of all ELO songs. Yeah. It's just an incredible song, and the arrangement, the way that it ends, it's it's a song of perfection. You could say that about a lot of his his music, you know. But that's just one that I'm mentioning that that comes to mind. Anyway, uh, we do have to wrap things up. I do want to make mention of the fact that if you want to see Glenn perform with the Weaklings, they will be at the Fest for Beatle fans, and they will be on Sunday only, correct? Sunday correct. afternoon. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sunday afternoon, and it's the weekend of March 20th through the 22nd, so they're playing on the 22nd, and it's at the Westchester Hilton in Rybrook. Right. And uh, so if you, if you can, please stop by. And uh, Glenn, it's been great having you. Again, the, the CD is just called The Weaklings. It's a self-titled album. Right. Go out and buy it. You will love it for the original songs and for the songs that uh, they covered from, from the Beatles. So, Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. We're actually going to close, with your kind permission, Glenn, uh, with uh, the song Little Tease. We normally don't play music here on the show, but Glenn has given us permission to play it. So we thought that uh, for something different, instead of just our saying our goodbyes, we'd close with the song. So we will say our goodbyes first <laughs> for things we said today. I'm Ken Michaels being joined by Steve Marinucci, Al Sussman, and Alan Cozen, and our special guest, Glenn Burtnick. Thanks, guys, Thanks. for being a part of the show. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. And, yeah. and uh, here is little tease from the Weaklings. We will see you all next time.
Cause you're such a little teaser, huh? You're so hard to please, cause you're such a little teaser, huh?